All right, church. Well, if you've got your Bibles, please open them up to Romans chapter 9. And preschoolers, you are dismissed, those going to the preschool class. One of the things we value as a church and as an elder team is teaching the whole counsel of God's Word. And that is why we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible on Sunday mornings and why we are committed in our city groups to reading together, uh, reading through books of the Bible together. Uh, We desire to get God's word to God's people. We want you to know all of the goodness and the glory that God has revealed to us through his word. And because we are committed to that, That means that we are also committed to teaching and preaching to you even the difficult parts of Scripture. And this morning, we come to Romans 9. And Romans 9 is a difficult passage because there is truth in this passage that at first can be very difficult to receive as a human being. The humanist part of our heart is going to object to some things here at first. But if you allow the word to do some work on you over the next few weeks, I believe that chewing on these truths and wrestling with these truths can produce profound joy in the life of a believer. And so we enter into it understanding that this is the meat, this is some of the meat of Scripture. I mean, you all say you don't want just the milk of Scripture. Well, here's the meat, and I'm telling you, you're going to have to chew on it before it goes down smoothly. You might not walk out of here being able to have gulped it all down easily and digested it. It's going to maybe take some time to chew on this and wrestle with it in order to really enjoy it. But just like a good filet, oh, it's worth, it's worth it. It is worth it. Now, this is also a passage of Scripture that has caused some division amongst Christians. As it brings up the question of, did God choose us or did we choose God? To which, of course, the only answer to that question is yes. And while I would love to just leave it at that and move on to Romans 12 through 16... There is more to be enjoyed in Romans 9 through 11 as we flesh that out and get into the details of how these two truths of Scripture that initially seem like contradictions to one another are in fact beautifully and gloriously compatible with one another. For there is this tension that we must be okay with because the Bible teaches it. There's this tension of these two truths, the first being that God is sovereign and in control of all things, and the second being that men and women make real decisions and are responsible for their decisions. There's a tension there, but these two truths do not contradict one another. They are compatible with one another, and both are taught in Scripture. The question is, how do those work together? And over the next couple of weeks, we'll try to get our minds around some of that. But if you look towards the end of this section of Romans to Romans 11, verse 33, which we'll have up on the screen, this is sort of how Paul ends this section of Scripture. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That word inscrutable means that God's ways are beyond finding out. They are beyond our complete comprehension. And so sympathize with me for a moment and be gracious to me as I stumble through trying to explain some of the deeper things about God's ways to you that admittedly are beyond all of our comprehension. We will take what God's word has revealed to us in his word. We will try to understand it. But in these next couple of weeks, we will get to certain points in our human reasoning and logic where we will have to say, we don't know. I don't always know why God does what he does, the way he does it, when he does it. But this is what I do believe and what I think we, why we can all rest easy at night. I believe that whatever God does is right. <laughs> and he has not asked for my opinion or for me to be his counselor. So we're good. Now, throughout this chapter and these next couple of chapters, I'll also try to explain to you how Christians have viewed these verses differently and then attempt to teach you as best as I can what I believe is the most faithful understanding of this scripture. But know, church, that there are some things here in Romans 9 that will be brought up that can't always be digested, enjoyed, and sorted out in one or two 40-minute sermons. And therefore, if anyone would like to meet with me about these topics or uh, these doctrines, I would, I would love to reach out. We, we'll meet together. I promise I preach passionately, but when we meet in discussion, I'm very calm and relaxed. And it, we won't debate one another, but we'll wrestle the truth together. And you'll ask questions of me, and I'll ask questions of you, and we'll both learn from one another, and I believe we'll both be humbled by that, and we'll grow together, and it'll be a beautiful thing. And so don't hesitate to reach out. Let's wrestle through some of these things together. Admittedly, this morning, I'm probably going to bring up more questions than answers. Next week, there'll be a bit more answers. But then after next week, if you still have questions, hey, let's meet, let's talk, let's grow together. I believe this truth is worth wrestling with, as I agree with Charles Spurgeon when he said, we'll have this quote up on the screen, Spurgeon said, whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. To me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation. And those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. If they could but know that the Lord had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance with joy. And that's my desire for us. I want your hearts to dance with joy. And I have tasted and seen that my own heart dances with joy after wrestling with some of these truths found here in God's word. And in the end, let's all agree that God's word wins. That's the title of this morning's sermon, God's word wins, because Paul in this section is bringing up questions that he knows the recipients of this letter are going to have. 
And the question we're going to see him answer this morning is, how, uh, is, has God's word failed? All right, that's primarily the question we're going to answer today. Like, has God taken back the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now, why does he anticipate these questions? Well, he's just given us some glorious promises in Romans chapter 8, hasn't he? That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That God is going to work all things together for the good for those who love him. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 8 is, is such a pinnacle and, and glorious mountaintop of these promises that God has given to his people. But the Roman church that is receiving this, you'll remember, is made up of Gentiles and Jews. And the question could be raised, hey, Paul, these are some great promises, but didn't God make some great promises to Israel? And where are all of them? In fact, most of them have rejected Christ and want to kill you, Paul. So why should the new covenant people of God trust God's promises to them if it seems like his word has failed Israel? Has God's word failed? And Paul is going to essentially say, absolutely not. God's word wins. And it will accomplish all that God has planned for it to accomplish. God's word wins. Now let's pray and let's ask God to help us believe that this morning. Father, we do ask for your, your help. This is your word, God. These are your people. I stand here only by your grace and the power of the Spirit to to try to point people to you, to try to explain your word as you have revealed it to us. But Lord, I am a finite being. I am incapable of doing this to the full degree that your word deserves. So we ask for your help. Help me as I speak. Help, me, help us as we listen. I ask that these difficult parts of Scripture would not stir up pride in us, but that they would humble us, that they would increase our love for you and for one another, that we might learn from one another, that we might be united together. Help us believe, Lord, that your word wins. Your word has never failed us. Father, help us believe that. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help us believe that. Your word has never failed us. And this morning and next week, God, I help us believe that your word in Romans 9 will not fail us. But it will accomplish all that you want it to. So do your work. Take this surgeon's knife and cut where you need to cut. Heal where you need to heal. Give light where we need light. Guide my words. Keep me from error. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get to some of the deep doctrines that Paul wants to teach us that will make our brains hurt, we must first see Paul's heart 
in these first few verses of chapter 9. If you've read this ahead of time and coming, I, I, I just love that chapter 9 starts out this way, talking about Paul's heart. I mean, isn't God the best? I know, he's, the, he's the best. I felt I was overwhelmed by that last night and this morning, thinking about preparing and, 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 and preaching this. And I was just overwhelmed with the fact, man, God is the best. We're sometimes the worst, but God is the best. And I love that he starts Romans 9 this way. And so before we get to the heady doctrine, we must first ask God to give us a heart like Paul's heart. Because if you do not first have the heart of Paul, your pursuit of the doctrine of Paul will only turn you into a prideful, arrogant theology monster. And we don't want that. God's word wins, and we must first see that God's word wins our hearts and breaks our hearts. And these verses then really set the stage for the rest of the chapter. Look with me at Romans 9, verse 1. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Church, notice what the Word of God has done to Paul's heart as he considers his fellow Israelites. He has great sorrow for them. He's experiencing agony and anguish and pain in his heart for them. He wants them to experience the blessings of Christ, of being in Christ, so much so that he himself is willing to be cut off and cursed and damned in their place if only they would come to Christ. He acknowledges that they have had such a privileged position in the world. For God had chosen them to be the first ones that he started calling sons. They were the ones who had been led by the glory of God through the wilderness and, and they experienced his glory through his presence at the tabernacle and in the temple. They were the ones who had first received the covenant promises and had received the law which revealed the holiness of God, revealed the heart of God, and revealed their own sinful hearts as well. God had given them so many promises, and from their family line came the Christ, the King, the Rescuer, Jesus, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I love that he amens himself here. Uh, for those of you that are going to teach and preach the Bible, only an apostle can amen themselves, okay? The rest of us have to at least add a question mark at the end. Amen? So you see how I did that? You can't, you got to add a question mark, all right, unless you are the Apostle Paul. But Paul can be like, no, that's good stuff. That's truth right there. Amen. And listen, these are truths that all Christians must and can agree on, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God, and like we sang earlier, he is exalted over all. 
We rally around that. We amen that together. We are in uh, agreement together that that is true. Jesus is the Christ. He is the rescuer. He is the Messiah. He is God, and he is exalted over all. But church, we must examine ourselves, though, at this point before we move on. Do we have hearts like this for those who are not following Christ? Or are we mainly angry and frustrated with them? Paul could have been really frustrated and upset with his fellow Israelites. But he's got this sorrow, this anguish, this broken heart for them. Is there some sort of sorrow and pain that we feel in our hearts when we consider our neighbors and our families and our co-workers and the distant nations that don't know Christ. Let me ask you this. Who does your heart hurt for? Who does your heart hurt for? For many of us, this is what we must wrestle with this week. Don't even move on to some of these other things if your heart doesn't hurt for some people. God's word, when it is received by faith, it wins our hearts and breaks our hearts for those who don't know Christ. Who does your heart hurt for? Now, these first five verses, they do set the table for these, the next verses that we're about to read. We see that Paul, here in these first five verses, is very concerned with the eternal destinies and salvation of his fellow Israelites, descendants of Jacob. And if possible, he would rather be cut off for their sake instead of them be cut off from Christ. Paul is concerned about the eternal destinies of those he used to go to the synagogue with. I mean, look back through the first five verses. Paul is concerned about those that he used to go to synagogue with. He's concerned about their salvation. And in these first five verses, we see a question that he is now going to answer, and that is, if Israel was God's chosen people, then how come seemingly many of them are going to be cut off and condemned? Has God's word failed? No. God's word wins, church. Let's see how, though. Look at Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's maybe one of the most clarifying verses in all of Scripture, and certainly in Romans 9 through 11, as we try to understand the people of God and the promises of God throughout history. Paul is showing us that there is ethnic Israel those of physical and natural descent. And then there is true Israel, or the elect in Israel, who were the ones that God had actually made the promises to. Paul's going to explain later in this section, in Romans chapter 11, in Romans 11 verse 7, he's going to say, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 
You see, Paul's differentiating between Israel and the elect. He's teaching us that all, not all Israel is true Israel. Paul is teaching us here that, eth- that there is ethnic Israel, and then you have true Israel. Now, this might bring up some other questions that you have about ethnic Israel, and if we, if we could hold off on those for a few weeks, we will address those questions as we continue to go through Romans. I don't believe that God is done with the Jews, just like I don't believe God is done with the Gentiles, but we will we will hold, we will try to just do one difficult doctrine at a time. So let's wait till Romans 11 to get to that. But the question, remember, he's asking is, has God's word failed because so many Israelites, at least in the first century and at this point in history, have rejected Christ and are lost? And Paul says, no, because not all from Israel belong to Israel. He's clarifying that God never promised to save every single Israelite who was a descendant of Jacob. That was never God's intent with these promises. God never promised to do that. And so you can't just claim, like many Jews did in Jesus's time and in Paul's day, that, hey, we're good because we're sons of Abraham. No, look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Instead of Ishmael, God chose Isaac. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." Now, everyone has to do something with the doctrine of election because it is found throughout God's Word. The word for election or elect means to pick out or to choose. And it doesn't initially hit us that well as ones who live in a democracy or a constitutional republic or whatever we live in. You can coach me on that, what we live in, but because, it, because we're used to being the ones that do the electing, right? We're, we're the ones that are used to doing the choosing. And so it doesn't hit us quite right to see that God is electing or God is choosing. But here we see that it is God who does the choosing and electing. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. And he chose Jacob and not Esau. And all Christians agree with that. We're, we're still in agreement here. But here's where Christians have differed. Some view God's purpose of election as only involving God choosing certain nations or certain groups for specific purposes. In this view, God's election is limited to being more of a just corporate in nature, but not involving the individual. 
The reference to Jacob being loved and Esau being hated is a quote from Malachi chapter 1 where God is referring to the nations that came from Jacob and Esau, the Israelites and the Edomites respectively. And so some do say that God's election, it's just, it's, just nat- it's just national, it's just corporate, and it's just for specific purposes, but it does not involve individuals and does not involve their salvation or eternal destinies. And if that's, if that's where you land in regards to election, know that I love you, you are welcome here, you are brothers and sisters in Christ And there are a lot of things we agree on. I agree that God can choose certain nations for specific purposes to carry out his sovereign plans. I'm in agreement with you on that. But in regards to this passage of Scripture and other passages, we probably just see it a little differently. And that's not how I understand what Paul is teaching us here. I believe that God's Word is teaching us that God's purpose of election not only involves nations, but also individuals. And his purpose of election not only involves specific purposes, but also eternal destinies and salvation. And here are a few reasons why I believe that. First reason is that nations are started by individuals and they are made up of individuals. I don't think you can separate the two as cleanly as you might like to. God, yes, raised up Pharaoh and the Egyptians for a specific purpose, and that involved him hardening an individual's heart. And we're going to talk more about that next week, okay? But I don't think you can separate individuals and nations as cleanly as some might like to. Second reason I believe that God's purpose of election involves individuals and their salvation is because that is what Paul starts out this chapter being concerned about. And it's how his argument continues through chapter 9 and through chapter 10. He's talking about salvation for people. And so in the context of where we find this passage, in the context of Romans 9 through 11, Paul is very concerned about individuals and their salvation. He's just said that he wishes he could be cut off instead of his fellow Israelites. The reason he gives for why some are cut off and some are not is not that, well, some of them are Edomites and others are from Jacob and they're Israelites. He's not answering the question as to why God chose Israel and not the other nations. He's answering the question as to why are some within Israel cut off and some are kept. And he says, no, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Israel was Jacob's later name, right? Not all who are descended from Jacob belong to Jacob. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's talking about individuals here. Third reason I believe that God's purpose of election involves individuals and their salvation is because in verse 8, Paul uses this phrase, children of God which he exclusively uses when he's speaking of salvation and being born again. He doesn't use that phrasing when he's simply talking about physical blessings or a plot of land or specific purposes. He uses that language when he's talking about salvation. He's just used it in Romans 8 a few times referring to our new birth, being born again. 
fourth reason I believe that God's purpose of election involves individuals and their eternal destinies is because when Paul emphasizes that something is not a result of works, he is typically referring to salvation. He'll talk about, hey, physical blessings often comes from, oftentimes come from good work. But when Paul is talking about something not being a result of works, he is talking about salvation. And here he says that this purpose of election is not because of works, but because of him who calls. And so I would lovingly urge you to see that Paul's main point here in this passage is not to show us how or why God chose the Israelites over the Edomites, but instead that not all who are from Israel belong to Israel. It's not simply a matter of being born into the right family or nation or being a part of the right ethnic group of people. It's whether or not you've been born from above. And just like it was your parents' choosing that led to your first birth, so too it was God's choosing that led you to be born again. But let's take, let's take a step back for a second and breathe. And let's make a brief application point as, as we step out of this passage for a second. And here's an application point I think we can all agree on. And that is that God's word wins nations by winning individuals. Individuals become nations and nations consist of individuals. The great commission to go disciple the nations, it starts with the people right in front of you. Just like we read in our call to worship from Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, so when you don't know where to start when to go about discipling the nations, when you don't know where to start when getting a, getting a charge like from, from Nate last week that we got, when you don't know where to start, you can simply start with opening up the word and reading it and teaching it to the people God has put in front of you. And as you do that, you trust that God's word wins, right? That's what we're doing with our, a lot of our kids here starting next Sunday as we've started this Awana ministry. Man, we've got a lot of kids that God is raising up and going to send out to the nations and to our nation as well. What are we going to do? Man, we're going to get them the word, and we're going to trust that God's word wins. God's word wins hearts. God's word breaks hearts. God's word wins individuals, and God's word wins nations. So we're going to get them the word and trust that God's word wins. We did uh, at our dinner table a fun little mathematic exercise of seeing what would happen number-wise if the Lord would bless our boys with wives and with kids of their own, and if their kids had kids and their kids had kids. Had to use a calculator because it started to get complicated. But we found that if the Lord should tarry another 300 years, that Brittany and I could have around a million descendants. Which I know 300 years is not that long in world history, I mean, in the history, right? 
I mean, to us, it does seem long. But in about 300 years, we'd have, we could have maybe a million descendants. There'd be about a quarter of a million Jacksonites. There'd be about a quarter of a million Jamanites. And there'd be about a quarter of a million Jordanites and a quarter of a million Joelites. Now, when you're thinking like that, doesn't that change the significance and the weightiness of what we're teaching them around the dinner table? Doesn't that change things as you gather here on Sunday or in a city group and you greet our kids? You love them and you encourage them. You give them a high five. Tell them to press on with Jesus. God's word wins nations by winning individuals. Set your heart and love and discipleship upon the people God has put around you. Open up the word and trust that God's word wins, church. God's word wins. Now, whether you think God's election involves nations or individuals or both, you are going to have to wrestle with the question of, On what basis does God make his choice to elect some people and not others? Everyone, we all have to wrestle with this one. We might as well wrestle with it now. I mean, is this fair of God? Is this just of God? Is God really righteous in all his ways? Is he really wise? Does he know what he's doing? Is this completely random? Is this an eeny, meeny, miny, mo thing? What's going on? Why would God still find fault with individuals if he chose some and not others? Why would God find fault with nations if he chose some and not others? We all have to wrestle with that. Now, I'm going to leave you a bit unsettled this week, and I'm going to allow you to wrestle with these questions, and we will address them next Sunday, because these are the questions that Paul is going to address. Paul knows that what he's taught so far in Romans 9 should stir up those questions in us. And so if you haven't ever been taught or read Romans 9 in such a way that the humanist part of your heart doesn't cry out, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If that's not your response to the first part of Romans 9, then you have probably not been reading it the way Paul meant it to be read. Because he brings those questions up. He says, hey, if you read this the way I meant it to be read, you're going to cry out, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? The questions I've cried out to God with at times. But look with me back to the text as to what it says, how God makes his choice to elect some people and not others. Look back at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, I want to make a clarifying summary statement about what I believe in regards to a person's 
salvation or condemnation because I, I want you to know where we're going to end up in the next couple of weeks in case you've got questions that are coming up. And this is, this is a, a quote from John Stott that we'll have on the screen. I think he summarizes well what the Bible teaches. He says, if therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. I believe that's a good summary statement. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And I believe that we can all agree with that. If therefore anybody has lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. But here's where, once again, now we have to address this. Uh, There could be some differing opinions even amongst those who've agreed with me all the way through so far. And that is with this phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I mean, did God really hate Esau and his descendants before he was born? Before he had done anything good or bad? And some some think yes. For certainly there are things that God hates. But even if that view is correct, it must be understood as a holy hatred and not a sinful hatred that we are more accustomed to thinking about when we think of hatred. However, I don't believe that is the best understanding of what Paul is teaching. I believe he's using this phrase in a similar way that Jesus did in Luke 14, 26, where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now understand that Jesus was not teaching us to hate our own father or mother or family. He was teaching us that we must love God in a greater way than we even love our own family. And therefore, what Paul is teaching us, at the very least, is that God loved Jacob more and differently than he loved Esau. Which we don't like that. But let's hear Paul out. And I'm telling you, if you wrestle with this one long enough and you come to grips with the depths of your own sin in your heart and you come to grips with the glorious grace and love of God, you wrestle with this one long enough and it will take some wrestling with. But if you wrestle with it long enough, I'm telling you, you will not be shocked by the phrase Esau I hated statement. You will actually be shocked by the Jacob I loved statement. So wrestle with it. I know you don't like it at first, but wrestle with it. The fact that God has chosen to be merciful and gracious to some of those who had rebelled and sinned against him is truly amazing love. It is truly amazing grace. The fallen angels did not get such a deal. But why has God set a greater love on Jacob and his true descendants and not Esau and his descendants? Is it because God looked into the future and saw that the Edomites were bad guys and Jacob's descendants were good guys? Look look at the text, verse 11. It tells us. 
It says, God's sovereign choice of Jacob and not Esau was first before they were born. It was second. It was before they did anything good or bad. And third, that it was not because of their works, but because of God who calls. But you say, doesn't God love the whole world? I mean, it's football season. We're seeing John 3.16 everywhere. Doesn't God love the world? And he absolutely does, church. He does. Jesus said that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. There is a benevolent love that God has for all of creation. Yes and amen. He made the sun rise this morning for all people. He has delayed the judgment of another day for all people. He's given all people chance to experience different pleasures and, and, and temporary blessings. Yes, he certainly has a love for all people. But here we see that God has set a special love upon his people. And it is a fatherly love. And it is a redeeming love. And it is not based upon anything in us. He loves us because he has chosen to love us. And we'll, we'll break this down a little bit more next week, okay? God's, God's choosing is not random. I don't think it's any, mini mighty, mo. Everything he does is grounded in his wisdom, but the scripture never tells us that there is something in ourselves that causes him to choose us. The only one that's close is when Paul, I think in the Corinthians, talking about how God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise. That might be the closest one we have of something in us. Maybe it was our foolishness. But it's not dependent, not based upon anything in us. He loves us because he has chosen to love us, church. In a similar way, think of it like this. I love all the kids in this church. I do. I love all the kids. I desire good things for the kids in this church. But can't we all agree that there are four in particular that I have set a special fatherly love upon them? I have entered into a relationship with four of the kids in this church that is unlike any other. And no matter where they go in the world or what they do, they will always be my sons and I will always be their father. This was a love I decided to set upon them before they were born, before they did anything good or bad, not because of anything they have chosen to do for me, but because I have chosen to call them my sons. I love them this way because I have chosen to love them this way. Now you might ask, well, how do I know if God has chosen me to love me in such a way? I'll tell you, if you even desire that, he has. But this, let me show you from the scripture. This is how Paul knew of it about the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. He writes to the Thessalonians, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Right? He says, we know 
You brothers are loved by God in this special fatherly redeeming love type of way. He has chosen you because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in, with full conviction. So church, does, does the gospel message sound like good news to you? The life, death, and resurrection of Christ, does it do something to you? I mean, does it sound like good news? If so, I'm telling you, God has set a redeeming love upon you because he has chosen to love you. Church, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you trust him? Has the Holy Spirit brought some conviction of sin? If so, this is evidence that God loves you because he loves you as a father does a son. And Jesus loves you like a father, like a brother, excuse me. Now, I realize that this redeeming love that God has chosen to set upon his people, it can, it can raise questions, it can raise objections. And we'll address some of those next week because Paul's going to address them. He knows that it's going to raise some, some issues. Just look with me at verse 14 in case you don't believe me. He's going to say, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? He's going to say down in verse 19, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If you're feeling these questions, it's okay. Paul, Paul knows you're going to ask those questions. But listen, if this is true, and I believe it is, think about how great of a love this is that God has set upon us. You see, God's word wins, church, and God's word wins us a type of love that we can build our entire lives upon. Think about this. What if our marriages were built upon this kind of love? What if because we've embraced this type of love from God, we extended the same type of love to our spouse? Our, our marriages will will bring glory to God, not when we love our spouse because we believe they are useful to us. We shouldn't primarily love our spouse because we love their looks or their personality or, or, or what they do for us. We should not love them as long as they trust us and we trust them. Church, that is not how God loves us. God loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he has chosen to love us. There was nothing we did that deserved or earned that, and therefore there is nothing we could do to lose that. When you come to your wedding day, the, the, the days of, well, I love him because of his personality, and I love him because uh, he's going to make a lot of money, or, you know, like all these other little reasons, or, or like we get each other, we're compatible. When you get to the, on your wedding day, those days are over. Now it's, I love you because I'm choosing to love you. You go love your spouse that way, and our marriages are going to flourish, church. Go tell them today, I love you because I have chosen to love you. You do not have to win my heart anymore. I have chosen to love you. I have chosen to love you. Go tell a brother, sister in Christ today that. And you watch our friendships and our fellowship in this body flourish as we love one another like that. Not I'm going to love you as long as we agree. I'm not going to love you as long as we get along and you don't annoy me. I'm not going to love you as long as I don't have to forgive you or you wrong me or anything like that. But no, man, I love you because I'm choosing to love you. 
That's what we call the people who are a part of Franklin City Church. It's like, choose to love these people. This redeeming love of God is something we can build our entire lives upon. What if our evangelism was built upon this kind of love? I mean, people wrongly think that the doctrine of election somehow discourages evangelism. It does not. It actually empowers it. It's what God used to motivate the Apostle Paul. In Acts 18, in Acts 18, verses uh, 9 and 10, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You see how God motivates Paul for evangelism? It's not, hey man, get, get a better speech together so you can convince some people to follow me. It's not, hey man, your words aren't eloquent enough. Let's, let's add some new vocab words and get a better intro and conclusion. He's like, man, don't be afraid. Preach the gospel. I've got many people in this city. They're not following me yet, but I'm calling them. So go call them to repentance and faith. They're coming, Paul. They're coming. They're coming in Franklin. The fullness of the Gentiles has not all been welcomed in yet. The life is still continuing on. There's more work to be done. There's more souls to be saved. God's still bringing people into the kingdom. That motivates us, church. That stirs up our evangelism. We believe that God's word wins. So go proclaim it. Go call people to faith in Christ. Go love people like Jesus loved people and trust that God's word wins. What if our evangelism was built upon this kind of love? What if our prayer lives were built upon this kind of love? Jesus invites us to approach, Jesus invites us to approach God and call him Father in our prayers. And yet some of us, we're afraid to pray. We're hesitant to approach. We feel unworthy. We feel like we're disappointments and not delights to him. But church, the, the Father loves you because he has chosen to love you. I, I, I've sometimes had times in life where um, I felt like my prayer was, was this, I was discouraged to pray. I didn't want to go talk with the Lord until I could live a really good holy week. Like until I had a really good week, you know, read the word a bunch, memorized scripture, shared the gospel, a good week, then I could approach God in prayer. How backwards that is. God loves you because he has chosen to love you. He invites you to call him father. Go to him in prayer. Take, take your struggles and the things you could wrestle with in this passage and take it to the Lord. He knows what to do with it. What if our prayer was built upon this kind of fatherly love, this redeeming love? Last question, would, would our pride be able to survive a love like this? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. This love that the Father has set upon us, this should humble us. It should assure us, and it should comfort us to the very end. I'll close with this closing thought from Spurgeon as he considered his own testimony. 
You can just listen to these words. Uh, we won't have them on the screen. He said, one, one weeknight, he's, he's, he's considering how he came to, came to Christ. He says, one weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. <laughs> Hopefully that's not too many of you today, but maybe, I don't know. Maybe you can relate. He said, the thought struck me, however, how did I come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. Yes, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, I thought. But then I asked myself, how came, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. And this is something I think we can all do this week. I'd encourage you to do this. Think about your own testimony and keep asking yourself the why question. How did you come to be a believer? Well, I went to this camp. I heard this teaching. Yes, but, but why? why? Why was that? Well, something in me stirred me or someone invited me. And Yeah, but, but why did someone invite you? Well, I, I guess something prompted them to invite me. Yes, but... but but, but why? 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 And you keep asking yourself the why, and I think you're going to see the glorious truth that God was at the bottom of it all. And he is the author of our faith. And we all ascribe our change wholly to him. May our hearts dance with joy. God's word has never failed. God's word wins our hearts and breaks our hearts for those that are not in Christ. God's word wins individuals and nations, and God's word wins us a love we can build our lives upon. God's word wins, church. Let's pray.